Steve, let's let's do something a little different today. Uh, I think we should each pick a number, and let's have our guests join in too. That sounds good. Sam, do you have a number ready? I do. Okay, so on three. One, two, three. Two, two percent. percent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so seriously, we all picked the same number, and it kind of sounds like we planned this. Well, my two percent is different than your two percent. Uh, okay, what about yours, Steve? Well, obviously, it's different. So, uh, so this is turning into a bad comedy routine. Uh, so let's just cue the music and get into why we each pick two percent and what it means for the housing market. Hello, and welcome to the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. Today on the show, we're going macro. We finished the second decade of the millennium, and we are just starting the third. So it's a good time to take stock of where we are and look at the economy overall and how it ties into the housing market. And to do that, we're joined today by our colleague, Sam Cater, chief economist here at Freddie Mac. So, Sam, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right. So lots to cover today, but I think we have an unresolved question from the intro. We all pick 2% as our number, uh, but we all claim to have a different 2%. So before I reveal my 2%, Sam and Steve, what were yours? So mine is the uh, gross domestic product, uh, which is the growth rate of the economy, 2%, which is a slowdown from last year and about running about trend. And uh, Steve, what was yours? My 2% is the growth rate and multifamily completions in the last data available to us, where um, supply has been growing at a pretty good clip for a while, which is a question we get about the multifamily market. And at this point, it's about in the same range, but down just a tad bit. And my 2% is the 10-year Treasury rate. You know, it's still under 2% since the end of July 2019, which is a pretty long term uh, at such a low rate. So, Sam, what's going on here, and what do these three measures tell us? I think it tells us that we are in equilibrium. Uh, we are in the longest expansion ever, and we're slowly running out of steam. Um, but we, you know, I think uh, the job market's tight. We just got new data this morning. Uh, very, very good numbers. One hundred and forty-five thousand increase in, in, in job growth. Uh, good steady growth rate in, in, in the wage, uh, wage rate. So I, I think it just indicates we're sort of uh, running at trend in, in many different segments of the market. And I think for me, the two percent is something that's different than a year ago. Right? We're certainly lower than a year ago. And I think that there was a lot of uh, viewpoint as to how that affects the origination market in multifamily. And, uh, and with kind of the lower for longer, the 2% staying where it is, I think there's an expectation that there's going to be a demand for origination dollars. And so that certainly is important to us, and, uh, and that's something that we've tracked. But as that rate came in and has kind of stayed down at this lower level, and I think the forecasts are that they'd you know, maybe make it a little bit above 2% during the year, but not dramatically higher, I think that puts us in a place where we're expecting uh, the multifamily market to continue to grow. Right, so let's look at that in the context of sort of the broader economy. Uh, maybe some short-term and long-term drivers of you know where we are today and maybe where that where things are going. Sure. So on the short-term side, really the job market is front and center. Uh, so jobs grew uh, 2.1 million in 2019, down from 2.7 million, and that that's expected. The unemployment rate's three and a half percent. That's a 50-year low, uh, and it's hard to find marginal incremental labor that's unemployed, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, we expect in the short term that the labor market continue to be very tight to generate good job growth. And it's really interesting because the job growth has really picked up on the lower end over the past 
a couple of years or so. Uh, what's sort of interesting about the economic expansion is we had a lopsided expansion where the top end of the market really recovered nicely in the first few years uh, between sort of you know 2010 and about 2015. And now over the last few years, the bottom end of the, the income distribution has really picked up. And that's good news for the economy, but particularly for multifamily. Um, so uh, the economy is sort of in this good, steady growth rate, equilibrium, longest expansion um, uh, ever. That's a that's good news for single family. Good news for multifamily. Uh, what's particularly interesting is uh, what's happening on the demographic side, which uh, is the longer term driver of the economy and the and the housing market. Birth rates are at thirty year lows. Population growth uh, rate is the lowest in a hundred years. Um, and there are a couple of main reasons for that. First, immigration has dropped, uh, and it's dropped quite a bit. But also, second is the birth rate, and that's been declining for an extended period of time. And so that, you know, in the next few years doesn't have that much of an impact, but over the medium to longer term will have an impact, a pronounced impact for demand, uh, uh, for real estate demand. So that's, I think, a good uh, chance to segue a little bit more, you know, go into a little bit more depth on the housing market and uh, that population impact, both you know, on the rental side and, and the home ownership side. Sure. So uh, let me begin where I ended, which is on the demographic side. So we uh, are getting a slow growth rate in the population, but that's nationally, and different places are uh, having different experiences. So if we look currently by region, uh, the population growth rates today are by far the strongest in what I call the open west markets. So in Idaho, Nevada, uh, Arizona. Um, these are places that have booming economies uh, and affordable housing markets and uh, really uh, uh, strong amenities, which a lot of millennials, which are the ones who are most likely to move, have really put a premium on versus their predecessors. Um, and so while nationally we have a, a slower growth rate of the population, um, it can really vary by region. We talked about the hot sort of uh, geographies uh, from a population growth rate. On the flip side are many markets in the Northeast and New England, which have some of the gr- slowest growth rates in the U.S. And some parts of sort of the interior um, states, uh, particularly along Appalachia. So, you know, West, your West Virginias and Alabamas and, and places like that. So uh, different experiences based on uh, geography. What's also interesting is that there's been a slower growth rate in many unaffordable markets. So a lot of the stronger uh, growth rates in the population have shifted to more affordable areas, which is not a surprise. It, it but but it really tells you something about the state of affordability um, in the market. Uh, on the shorter end, um, as I said before, I, you know, for me the most important uh, metric is the labor market. Uh, but when we look at segments of the economy. Uh, we had a pronounced slowdown in, in uh, 2019, and that was uh, driven by the run-up in rates uh, that occurred in uh, late 18, uh, and the residue of that was felt throughout 19, even though rates were falling, because there are long and variable lags in terms of the response to rates. And so we had a slowdown in the housing market, and it was subtracting from economic growth. And then we also had a slowdown in manufacturing, and that was particularly com- compounded by uh, some of the tariff issues that were dominating the 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 market uh with the drop in rates housing now is coming back and beginning to contribute to economic growth that's a big deal because housing contributes to about one-sixth of the economy and often the real estate cycle is the business cycle so this is a big deal 
Uh, manufacturing is no longer worsening. It's sort of bottoming out and beginning to Im- improve. It's still sensitive to headline uh, headline risk. You know, we'll see where that where, we'll see where that goes. But really, the m- most important is that housing is beginning to uh, really contribute to economic growth, and the consumer is still on solid ground. And, and this goes back to the labor market argument, which you know uh, the consumer accounts for two thirds of spending in the economy. So really, we can talk about some of these other cyclical factors, but it all goes back to the consumer, and they're on solid footing. Yeah, and I think that um, you know the same markets that you're talking about, Sam, in terms of regionally, uh, the open west. Um, certainly, when we look at our forecast for the year ahead and how you know rents and property performance will be, um, certainly markets like Phoenix and Las Vegas move to the top. And similar to what you're saying on some of the high cost markets, uh, kind of coming back in a little bit, we've seen that I think with with East Bay and even San Jose, where these are you know high priced markets that have been doing pretty well for a while. Um, but there might be a little bit of uh, more slow growth there. And and what's really interesting about the uh, some of these markets is is now uh, you know you've had your sort of your your Boise's and Salt Lake cities, which are sort of the newest kids on the block um, in terms of home price you know rapid home price appreciation and population growth. But now it's spilling to smaller secondary and tertiary markets like Cheyenne, Wyoming, and Pocatello, Pocatello, Idaho. Right. So some of this you know some of this migration is spilling into these smaller markets, and you don't need a lot of folks to move into these places to start to overwhelm uh, their housing market. Uh, so, so do you see, uh, you know, in places like that, then there's a, obviously a need for infrastructure growth as well. Absolutely. Uh, infrastructure is really lagging in the U.S. If you look at the age of the capital stock, it's the oldest it's ever been, and it continues to grow. And that really shows that there's been a lack of investment. I mean, there's there's been a lack of investment in the business community, and this gets a lot of attention in in the in the press there's been a lack of residential investment and this gets attention in the in the housing market amongst uh, folks like uh, like us but then there's also been a lack of investment in in uh, in our grids in our streets and our buildings which which you know uh, 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 account for our capital stock and the way I think about sort of our infrastructure is they're they're sort of like the veins in your body right you want you want activity to be flowing through there, no obstruction, um, because uh, you know a healthy, fit person will have blood flowing their veins in a very fluid and efficient way. Um, and if that doesn't happen, then you are in trouble. And this is what we're sort of seeing in our in our economy is that our is our infra- infrastructure cannot keep up with our the growth rate of our population, even though it's growing slowly, which really is telling. Um, and I think that's what's driving some of this migration away from some of the, some of the coasts into some of these other markets. So there's one point that you made earlier about housing being uh, about one-sixth of, of the economy. So this may be a little bit of an obvious question, but I'd like to get into a little bit of how exactly does housing contribute so much to the economy? Sure. So it contributes uh, in a couple of main ways, one directly and the other is indirectly. On, uh, in terms of the direct impacts, it really is about the construction of the unit. Uh, and so, for example, on the single-family side, it takes about five uh, full-time equivalent people to construct a single-family structure. Uh, and it takes about two full-time equivalent uh, people to construct a single multifamily condo unit. And so the... Um, the construction and the labor are the direct multipliers that cause economic growth to uh, rise, right? So you pay these people to construct the property. They go out and they spend that that money. Uh, when you build these units, people will move into them, and then they'll have to purchase things to furnish their units. And so you have these multipliers that, that sort of flow out uh, directly from the construction of the units. And then there are um, some indirect 
uh, multipliers as well. So, for example, there are people that uh, there are realtors that work in these uh, communities, uh, f uh, folks who work in the leasing uh, community or, or leasing office. If anyone moves from a home, they're most likely to improve the home before they put it on the market, and so that will uh, inc uh, include some uh, incremental. Uh, spending and so that's how it sort of you know all adds up and then there's sort of the multipliers that flow out of that 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 are counted back by economists as sort of the, the and there's impact. and there's times where typically residential housing is contributing to growth in the economy at, at a you know a greater pace and times where it's less and so lately has it been along with expectations or a little different yeah so in 2019 it subtracted from uh, uh, growth you know usually it's adding 20 to 30 basis points of of, of growth per year and in a two percent world that's uh, that's small and, and also keep in mind that that's f from a uh, annual year perspective when when uh, economic growth is uh, accelerating or de decelerating it's usually due or often due to housing helping it go up and down so in the movements it can actually contribute quite a bit more than the one sixth the one sixth was sort of more of a static uh, 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 a metric, so so it can really have a strong influence. So in in in, tw in 2019, it generally subtracted from growth, but in the last quarter, uh, sort of quarter and a half, the last four or five months, it really began to contribute to uh, economic growth, and it will continue to in uh, 2020. And I think a part of that might be the lower rates and a little bit more activity in the single family market now. Is that accurate? Ab absolutely. I mean, we're seeing new home sales are up 30 percent. Uh, year over year, and that that has a huge impact on construction. Right, we we had a little bit of excess supply in the new home market in in 2019, which is why you had the the, the sort of the pullback on the on the construction. But is now the the recovery is back in full swing, and we expect uh, we expect it to continue to recover the rest of this year. And then I know that these are a lot of indicators and you know inner workings of the of the housing market. And uh, but I know one that's really key to you is you know how that flows then through into house prices. Correct. So in my opinion, home prices are the most important metric to really un get a understanding of what's happening uh, in uh, in real estate. Um, and and it's not just important to uh, economists uh, or those who follow real estate, but it's even important to uh, the average person on the street. And here's why. Uh, real estate is the biggest uh, component of inflation. And inflation is a hot topic, always, for anyone. <laughs> um, and so uh, the change in home prices uh, accounts for about a third of the inflation that goes up or down each year. Um, and so real estate prices also uh, really impact the average person, whether they know it or not. <laughs> uh, and so that's why it's, it's an important metric. But to bring it back to closer to uh, housing. It's really the single indicator that can capture the state of the market from a supply and demand uh, perspective. It's also really um, an, a really nice indicator of the local economy because there's a strong correlation between changes in home prices and, and improvements in the economy. So, if, so from my, you know, from my analytical uh, perspective, uh, at a local level, it's the best real-time indicator of what's happening in that uh, local economy. In terms of where we expect home prices to go, over the next year, we expect home prices to rise about three percent this year, and uh, and then slowly decelerate uh, after that. When we look at the supply of homes, which where there's really a crunch, and that's what's driving um, the run up in, in prices. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, the level of existing home sales inventory, unsold inventory, hit the lowest level in four decades, which is stunning to think about. Even lower than where it was in you know sort of the mid two thousands 
or when when uh, home price growth was uh, faster than uh, where it is today. So I, I expect that we will continue to get upward pressure on home prices, not just because of the demand side, but really the supply, because that's what's driving the market today. The chronic lack of supply is really driving up uh, prices and driving up rents uh, pretty much everywhere, with the exception of some of the really uh, struggling economic areas in the country, such as parts of the Midwest, parts of the Appalachia, parts of New England. So you mentioned uh, earlier, so I'm hearing like two things that seem to compete a little bit, but I'm, I'm guessing they don't in, in reality, which you said there was a, a little bit of a slowdown in new supply coming into the market last year because of worry that maybe there was too much, yet there's a severe long-run shortage of supply. So what's going on there? Yeah, so let me parse that. So yeah, uh, the um, the run-up in the inventory last year was really due on the new construction side and really on the high-end side, where there's been plenty of supply. I mean, and this is sort of related to the lopsided nature of the recovery. We had a really lopsided uh, recovery in the economy, and so the more well-off really were doing well. They were buying houses, uh, and the builders caught up to that demand by 15 or 16, and then they began to sort of overbuild a little bit into uh, 17 and 18, and then you get the run-up in rates, and then you get this whipsaw effect, which is why you uh, saw some of the really sort of outsized response in some of the uh, less affordable markets on the coast where, where this uh, incremental new construction is. Stepping back from that segment, if we look at uh, inventory as a whole, new construction market, uh, and the existing home market, which really is is the dominant segment of the market. New home, the new construction, new home sales, are about ten percent of overall existing home sales. And when we look at that combined uh, uh, universe, um, the 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 inventory is 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 quite low, and you know. In, and it's low in most parts of the country. And here's what I mean by low. In some of these um, West Coast markets like a Seattle or San Francisco, the month supply of homes is under two months. Uh, normally, we would be looking for five to six months. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so and there's sort of a really interesting piece, which is there's a nonlinear response in, um, in the lack of supply and the run-up in prices. So, for example, as the um, unsold supply, the month supply drops from five to four to three to two months, you, you get higher and higher pops in home prices. And so this is what we're a little bit at risk at today is this inventory gets really, really tight. Um, we, we could be subject to a little bit of a reacceleration in, in home prices, even though we are in this 11th year of the expansion, the longest expansion ever. Mm-hmm. And I think just to piggyback off of that and speak to the multifamily side a little bit is that uh, I think often, Sam, when when you and I talk together, we talk about that supply and demand kind of mismatch and how demand has been so much significantly higher for any number of reasons that you've talked about. Um, and and supply hasn't kept up. And that's not only affecting the single-family market, but it's affecting the multifamily market. It's made it so that we've had you know a long period of rents growing faster than inflation. And that's kind of the basis of under, you know, underlying the property price appreciation in, in multifamily as well. And I think certainly with the low rates, which has uh, some, some impact on bringing cap rates potentially in a little bit, um, and rent growth, while it may not be quite as strong as last year, continuing to outpace inflation. And that leads us to think that multifamily prices go up as well. Yeah. And, and, and that, this is sort of in the short to intermediate term, you know, longer term, we've got this demographic tailwind that's entering the for sale market. Uh, the peak age cohorts of millennials, the largest population segments in the U.S., turned 30 this year. 
Uh, and so they are going to be slowly moving out of the, some of them, a good chunk of them, will be slowly moving out of the multifamily space and into the single family space. And this will mean there's plenty of um, tailwind to the single family market in this decade. Uh, in fact, uh, I did some research in the past that showed that the peak uh, sort of application activity into the single family market occurs between 32 and 38 years of age. So I think from a demographic perspective, we are going to have a solid decade of demand on the single family side. The problem is we just don't have enough supply. And I think it's interesting, uh, again, uh, things that we've talked about in the past is, uh, you know, I think that on, on our side in multifamily, we would sometimes get questions and say like, okay, as the single family market starts to kind of you know, gain strength and, and have more um, first-time home buyers come into the market. That like, what's that gonna? Where's that gonna leave multifamily? And it's been remarkable that the first-time home buyer has been strong for a little while now, right? And, and like we say, I mean, from my perspective, I think the two markets coexist because there continues to be people that are in their parents' basement. I think that I think the last number I saw on that is still like 25% of households are or or of millennials are in a parent's or a relative's, you know, kind of doubling up household. And so you've got a situation where we certainly expect growth in the ownership market. And I'd say there's still kind of that longer-term demographic factor is, is affecting the overall housing market still. And we, we've uh, looked at individual age cohorts of the millennials. It's sort of the youngest millennials and oldest Gen Z, and they are staying in their parents' basements uh, at the same rate as their older cohorts, meaning, so, uh, meaning looking at 23-year-olds in 2018 and 2019 and then looking at them over time and their propensity to stay at home. It's not changing at all, even though very hot labor market, 3.5%, long expansion. This is the time, as good a time as there is, to be graduating in. And yet they're still staying in their and yeah, uh, staying with their parents. And would you, I mean maybe the, I mean we speak to affordability on the multifamily side a lot and say you know it's definitely worsening affordability conditions and people are having to pay rents which that are growing faster than their incomes which is making it harder to save up. But uh, on the on the single family side, I mean rates is a factor that conti- that contributes to more affordable more affordability on the single family side, but. What is the overall situation for single-family affordability? Um, I still think it's uh, uh, unaffordable, and 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 here's why: while rates can really be a bit of a mirage in terms of the monthly payment, I, I think a lot of these first-time homebuyers can can actually afford the monthly payment. That's not the constraint. The constraint's the down payment. Right. And so I think this is sometimes when you it's a little bit of a nuance when we look at some of these affordability metrics, the monthly. And this is why you're here. You're here. Some folks say, well, sure, but it's an advantage to own versus rent because the monthly payment is cheaper than the rent. The problem. Yes, that's a true statement. The problem is they can't afford the down payment. That's always the hurdle. And it's getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. I and mean, certainly I, mean, I, I think back to when when uh, we bought our first home. Know, years ago, that just the psychological fact of surrendering a you know material portion of savings towards down payment uh, was a lot to get over. Uh, absolutely, and I had I had the same uh, ex- uh, experience uh, because when I wrote the down payment check for my first home, I think it was fifteen or twenty k, and that seemed like a lot of money at my age. And you know, for today's millennials, it's going to be double that, um, and they're basically coming out of school making the same amount of uh, money, which is why we're seeing home ownership rates really decline on the margin for younger folks. Um, and this is just really an indicator of uh, the constraints and the headwinds they face. Um, you know, we've done some work on 
surveying uh, millennials and Gen Z, and their willingness and desire to purchase is very high. It's not really any different than their parents or any older generations. So their willingness and desire is very high, but their capacity is constrained. So you both discussed kind of the, the huge hurdle of, of making that down payment. Um, and, and I think people often think of coming up with 20% or, or things uh, a number along those lines. What is it right now in, in the single-family market across, across the board? What, what are the options, I guess? In the single-family market, the typical down payment is uh, about 10%. But it is true, and it's really interesting, that many uh, uh, home buyers, um, and not even just first-time home buyers, but even repeat buyers who should know better, but they don't seem to know that, uh, that there are options beyond a 20% uh, down payment. We at, here at Freddie Mac have some low down payment options. Uh, there are also options at um, <clears throat> FHA and VA, state and local uh, uh, entities also have uh, low down payment uh, financing programs. So there's a sort of a, a quilt work or, or a patchwork of of low down payment products that are out there that often consumers are unaware of. Yeah. So thinking about you know, home buyers, first time home buyers, and and repeat. Yeah, I, th- I think it's also important, right, to think about different parts of the. Uh, Different parts of the economy, top end, bottom end of the of the wage scale, and so uh, you know, I'm curious, what are you seeing there now uh, go- going on in the market? Sure, it's really interesting. Uh, so the low end uh, uh, part of the income distribution is really getting a pop in wage growth, and it's happening for a couple of broad uh, reasons. First and most importantly, the unemployment rate is three and a half percent, and what's really interesting is it's it's really declined the most for those with the least amount of education and the least amount of skills, uh, and they tend to be on the lower income part of the uh, distribution, and so naturally, as the unemployment rate um, drops, uh, employers have to bid up wages to find incremental labor. But moreover, over the past few years, there's been really a, a strong drive at the state and local effort to increase uh, uh, minimum wages, and that's had an impact on low-end uh, uh, wage growth. So the combination of the of the two, though primarily it's due to the drop in the unemployment rate, has really led to this curious phenomenon where now you have low-end wage growth that's outpacing the top end of the of uh, the market. And I think this is one of the main reasons why the economy is continuing to sort of hum along, because there are many people who were not able to get on the economic expansion train <laughs> of uh, last decade. Um, and they've only been able to get on the past two, three, or four years. They, you know, the recession for them just ended two or three years ago. Um, and so, you know, and they are their propensity to consume out of that income, incrementally rising income, is very high. So whatever dollars coming in, they're spending it back out. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm still optimistic that uh, economic growth will continue to uh, 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 grow in this decade, and I, you know, I don't believe in the, uh, you know, there's this sort of fallacy: do uh, do economic expansions die of old age? I don't think so. In the past, it's been due to either policy mistakes, vulnerabilities, or exogenous shocks, the, and the risks of all three. We can go through them real quick. Uh, you know, the risk of a policy mistake is quite low. Monetary policy is at a good sort of neutral level. The Federal Reserve has, has clearly communicated that they are going to lay off this year and, unless something drastic happens. In terms of vulnerabilities, you know, stock stock prices and home prices are elevated, but not at super rich uh, levels. There are some segments of the consumer debt market that are a little bit worrisome, but, you know, again, nothing, uh, nothing out of the... Uh, Nothing out of the ordinary. And then the last is exogenous shocks, wars, pandemics, things like that, by their nature, unpredictable. Um, 
Uh, but, but, you know, on net, I'm optimistic about this coming uh, decade, uh, primarily because the bottom half of the income distribution is now really beginning to participate. Right. And I, I agree um, that, uh, you know, when we think about the next decade, I mean, I think looking back to the previous decade is, is, is informative because of how, uh, in, in the housing market, just what a crazy situation it's been in terms of at the, at the beginning of the decade, the, the homeownership rate was still continuing to come in, which has affected the, the rental market so much, right? And I think that that's led to this long period of, of rent growth um, which, which, like you say, um, as as lower income households, you know, start to get more income, then we're really hopeful that that turns into a situation where there are forming households in that, and they they continue to kind of benefit from that. And I, I think the other thing that we'll just have to watch about those households and the and the and the certainly the rental market in the decade ahead is the affordability situation that's been affected by, you know, that, that switch over to, to rentership and, uh, and the long period of rent growth. And, and like you, you looked at the, you know, the upper end and the lower end of, uh, of the income distribution or, or house prices. And uh, certainly when, in rents, you know, when we say the average has been growing a little bit faster than inflation, at the low end, it's been growing faster than that, right? It's been, that's been the segment that's also very squeezed on supply and, and a lot more households down there. So we're hopeful that those households um, gain income, but I think that the decade ahead will also, there will be a lot to be determined about how do you get housing that's going to be affordable to these households. Absolutely. On the single-family end, you have the same exact trend, which is low-end prices, price growth has outpaced the upper end by two to three percentage points. So, for example, you know, anytime we, we talk about uh, home prices nationally increasing 3%, what that today means is that the low end of the price distribution is accelerating at 5 to 6%, and the upper end is more like 1% to 2%. Um, and so, it, it, you know, uh, so there are some distributional aspects that I think are really uh, uh, bear watching. And, you know, a lot of that is due to the lack of supply because it tends to be on the not just the, you know, it used to be sort of the lower part of the price distribution or middle. Now I think it's creeping into the upper middle mm-hmm. part of the price and income distribution um, because it's because of the chronic shortage has gotten so large. All right. So we, we do have uh, two heads of research here at Freddie Mac. So so want to just think a little bit about, you know, in the next decade, what are some some research uh, ideas that maybe warrant a little bit more attention or some new attention? So I, I still think even though affordability has been well researched, I still think research into the obstacles and constraints into homeownership are really um, important. I think we really need to better understand um, as a society why the price of new homes are going up. And I think it's a big, really important picture. Um, and it's not just new homes, but it's the segments of the economy that are heavily reliant on labor have very low or zero productivity growth rates. So for example, in construction over the last 50 years, according to research by McKinsey, the, the productivity Growth rate of construction, zero. Same for healthcare, same for education. No surprise, these are the three fastest large segments in terms of inflation. And so this is a big picture policy thing that I think we need, not just as housing researchers, but as economic researchers and sort of uh, sociologists. You know, what, what, why, why is this happening and what can we do about it from a policy perspective? And that gets beyond sort of you know, the research here. But I think this is of broad and strong importance to us uh, in the housing market because the housing budget takes up the biggest segment 
of the consumer uh, sort of uh, expenditure uh, uh, bundle, and you have these three segments that are very important to us as uh, people in a society, yet it's squeezing our budget more and more. And I think the housing market is is front and center now more than it's ever been in, uh, in policy space, and it's because a lot of the issues that we've talked about here and I think that we know the affordability story, and we talk about that a lot. As we, as we think about uh, the decade ahead, I mean, we, we think about how do we address those things. We certainly care about that at Freddie Mac, whether it's on the rental or ownership side. How does, how does housing get produced? And I think there's innovative things that are being done in that that we've talked about in the past. And I think tracking how those things work and how they, you know, how, uh, how can you lower the cost of construction, that'll be fascinating. I think that the the demographic shifts that we'll see over the next decade, right, with the baby boomers aging, and and we talk about like, are the homes that they will they move out of their homes, right, and when they and when and if they do, you know, are those homes the ones that are desired by the by the younger um, generation, and uh, and kind of the mismatch there, and uh, um, and I think that all of these things, you know, we often talk about the uh, the home ownership rate and. Uh, but there's these things that are happening underneath that uh, that really impact, you know, where where is it you want to live, right? If a house becomes available in a place you don't want to be, um, that is not going to change that individual's decision. All right. Well, thank you, uh, thank you so much, Sam, for for being on the podcast today. Great discussion, and uh, certainly want to have you back at some point. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.